This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Enjoying God by Tim Chester, a book that makes a great Christmas gift. More information at thegoodbook.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a talk by Fred Sanders on how the doctrine of the Trinity should shape our churches. It was recorded at the Gospel Coalition's 2018 West Coast Conference in October. Just to kind of start with the big reveal, the church is the household of God the Father. We learn in 1 Timothy, it is the body of Christ from Ephesians, and it is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians. So there you go, in case you're running to kind of sneak out and go to one of the other sessions, which look really good. Um, you've kind of got the big, the big takeaway there. Um, the church is shaped by the Trinity. Um, the Trinity has already shaped our churches. So if you're looking for a Trinity-shaped church, you need to acknowledge, first of all, that um, by definition, a Christian church is the household of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God already made it Trinity-shaped. Um, but if you then turn to the question, but how should uh, the Trinity shape our churches, then you're turning from the idea of Trinity-shaped ecclesiology. Ooh, I could use a fancy word, Trinitarian ecclesiology. Yeah. Um, you're turning from Trinitarian ecclesiology as a gift of God to the church to um, Trinitarian ecclesiology as a kind of task for us to do better with, um, to go deeper, to be more Trinitarian in our church practices and in our Christian lives, um, especially in the communities, uh, the Christian communities that we live in. So we want to do better, go deeper, and be more Trinitarian. Yes and no. Uh, what I mean by no is, um, if you hear, God constituted the church as a Trinitarian-shaped reality, and your first thought is, how can I make it better? That's the, that's the wrong kind of move, right? Um, you're not going to uh, improve on God's work. So just the clear acknowledgement that the Trinitarian character of the Christian church is a divine work. It's the constitution of who the people of God are. That recognition... Uh, lets you know that there are some wrong answers to this question. Um, but then on the yes side, you could say, well, we do want to uh, undertake the labor and the task, the, the work of making our churches more Trinitarian, of giving a more Trinitarian shape to our churches. How then? By going deeper, by understanding better what God has already done, by being more consistent in it, more fluent, more natural um, in our Trinitarian existence as Christian churches. For a church is to be shaped by the Trinity, in other words, it will have to be something that takes place uh, with wisdom, uh, the kind of wisdom that has insight to what's already there. So you never wake up one morning and decide, it's on me to come up with clever ideas uh, for how to carry forward this project. And I say clever on purpose. I think clever is a really important word. Um, and I, I mainly am going to use it in a pejorative sense here. Uh, I'm thinking about something Dorothy Sayers said one time. She said, clever people ruin everything, right? Like, <laughs> we're just going along, uh, um, doing our best, and then someone clever comes along, and they have the nifty keen idea, and then they want to package it, sell it to you, promote it, get you excited about it, and then a week from now, you know they're going to come up with the next clever idea, and then they'll be on about that. Um, and there are some things that cleverness is really just kicking all the life out of. And I think, um, I mean, cleverness, what's good about cleverness? Why are we drawn to it? We're drawn to it because it's showy, right? It's superficially impressive. I actually kind of hope that you leave here and say, hey, that's Sanders guy, clever, 
That, you know, that was clever. Did you hear how he kind of used words and talked and stuff? I, I like that. Clever. Um, but it's facile, right? Cleverness is it's showy, it's facile, it's superficially impressive. Uh, it, it leads you to see something someone does and say, wow, that's a pretty neat trick. Pretty neat trick. And so you probably want that for pretty neat tricks. If you're at a party and you're going to juggle or something or do a cup stacking or like do a card trick, um, you want people to say, I'm impressed. That was very entertaining. Thank you. That was clever. Um, but if you're actually looking for things that really engage reality and go deep, then of course what we're looking for is wisdom. So what I want to try to describe is uh, the wisdom of allowing the Trinitarian nature of God to shape our church. But I, uh, I want to start with the negative first. I want to start with how not to let the Trinity shape your church, how not to go about the, sort of the superficially impressive, merely clever ways of striving for um, uh, something Trinitarian in your church. And I want to start here because I want to end on a positive note, obviously, and spend most of my time on the positive exposition. But I really feel like I need to clear the air. I teach on the doctrine of the Trinity all the time. I've done so for years. Um, and... I feel like often when I hear someone introduce the subject of the Trinity in a public setting, what follows is something clever. And so I have to be the one kind of throwing a wet blanket on it and saying like, well, that's, that's not really, um, that's not how we're going to work with this. That's not how that works. Um, and I'm not doing it because I'm territorial. It's because I think there's a deep wisdom of the Trinitarian nature of God working its way out in the gospel and in our churches and superficial cleverness gets in the way. I'll give you some illustrations and I'll even name a couple of names for you here in a minute. Um, but uh, I want to start by describing a thing I, an accomplishment I had in high school um, with my first car. I got my first car. It was a terrible car. It was some kind of, you know, blob of a Nissan wagon. Um, uh, it was very cheap, and it needed a lot of work, and my dad had instructed me to, you know, check the oil, because one of the worst things you can do to that kind of a car is not keep the oil level right, and this one was not a super tight car. So, man, I, I pulled that dipstick out, and I checked that oil. I checked it every day. You know, I, I checked I lived several miles from the rural school that I went to, so it was a drive into high school. And, I, you know, I checked that oil every morning, every morning. Every I checked that oil. checked it sometimes when I got home at night. If you do that a lot, that's too much, by the way. Don't check your oil that much unless, you've, unless you know you have an you know, identified problem and then fix it so you're not polluting the whole road. Um, eventually, if you do that, though, you will wipe a quart of oil off the dipstick, right? <laughs> and it, can, it can only take so much wiping of the dipstick before you're, you're down. But that was an exciting day for me. After all these days of checking my oil, finally I was down a quart. Finally I got to add some oil. So I went to the trunk, got my quart of oil out, went back. I had spent so long checking the oil that I no longer had any idea of what else to do with the engine block. So I thought about it and I thought, okay, what, where, where do I put this? I've got to get this right. You don't want to put oil in the wrong place in your car. So I thought, what do I know? I know the dipstick hole goes to the oil pan. So if I put the oil in there, it will go to the right place. That's clever, right? I, and this was, um, this was November in Kentucky. It was cold. Um, but I took the lid off of that oil, and I poured it down that dipstick hole. It took most of an hour, and I did not spill a drop. If you had been there, I think you should admire my perseverance, you know, my steady hand, my ability to withstand the torment of the elements, um, my correct reasoning that I could safely get oil to the oil pan by pouring it down that dipstick hole. But I don't think that's what anyone would say if they watched that. So I was late for school that morning because um, it just takes a long time to pour a quart of cold oil down a dipstick hole. Um, I, and as soon as I was done, you know, I was dedicated, I was focused. And as soon as I was done, 
I screw the lid back on the empty oil can, I was gonna throw it away, and my eye caught this round button on top of the engine block, this big, fat, round disc with an icon of an oil can on it. And I thought, oh, and I unscrewed it and looked, and sure enough, it's this giant gaping hole that goes right down where I needed to get the oil, and I thought, that's note for the next time, right? That's, that's what I'm gonna do next time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that. Well, this is the kind of cleverness um, that I think is, it's impressive in its own way, uh, but what did I lack? I lacked the actual deep wisdom of knowing how the engine worked and what you should do and how to kind of behave with some acquired common sense about it. Um, as the Puritans would say, let me now make a plain practical application of this illustration. Some people approach the doctrine of the Trinity um, as, uh, as the same way I approached my engine block, as clever fools, right? I, I did a really clever thing there and it was very foolish. Um, some people approach the doctrine of the Trinity as clever fools. Uh, and they are attracted to it because it sounds neat, it sounds advanced, it sounds mathematical, or maybe it sounds uh, a high church or something. Like something about it draws and they say, oh yes, the Trinity, that's a big word. That's not even the Bible. Uh, that word is not even in the Bible. That's a value add, right? Like this is how you know you learn something. Like you can tell I went to a class because now I'm using a special word that it's, it's, it's a biblical idea, but the word itself you apparently have to learn in seminary or from tradition. And then they ask, what does this mean? What's the practical value of it? And then they start coming up with clever answers. Um, here's some dead giveaways for you for when someone's settling for cleverness with the Trinity instead of for sort of deep wisdom of what it's really connected to. Um, a real commitment to analogies is a dead giveaway that someone's functioning with the doctrine of the Trinity at the level of cleverness. I'm not absolutely anti-analogy. I like to think I'm a creative thinker. I was an art major in college. I like poetry. I love me some analogies. But when someone's really hooked on one and they think, here's what the Trinity's like, right? And you say, mm, only a tiny bit, a teeny tiny bit. That's a little glimpse of what the Trinity is kind of like in a certain way if the Trinity were water. Right? <laughs> right? Um, and if they won't settle for that, if like, no, it's a good analogy, isn't it? You say, well, I mean, no and yes, but mostly no. You know, it's like, if you're trying to figure out how some three things could be some one other thing, and you're just trying to get a mental image to wrap your mind around to give you kind of a toehold, um, and then you freely admit, that's not really what the Trinity is like, okay, that'll work. And they say, yeah, blah, 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 I heard the things you just said, but really the Trinity is exactly like water, right? Okay, I see. Um, most people aren't really that committed to the death, to the water analogy, or to the shamrock, or to the, um, you know, insert your favorite one here. Um, where you do find that they're really committed is they think a trinity is like a very well-functioning family or committee, right? I'm going to say, well, not the committees I've been on. Those are not heavenly. Um, <laughs> um, and if they really stick to it, right, like the trinity, those three persons are really exactly like three people who relate in exactly the way we study social interactions dynamics now, right? Um, it, that kind of commitment lets you know, okay, you're missing what this is really all about, um, and you're hooked on the uh, analogy. Here's the other dead giveaway, though, is interest in the number three. If somebody is very interested in the number three, and the first thing they think about is like, how can our churches be shaped by the Trinity? Well, we could have like three different parking lots, you know, or a three-point sermon, you know, that could be like a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We could sing three verses of every hymn. I mean, you can hear the superficiality of it, right? And you go, whoa. I, you do have to say the word three to talk about the Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is just sort of the Latin word for threeness, yeah? Um, but that's not what it's about. 
And to be focused on that is a dead giveaway that someone's still kind of creeping around on the outside of the mystery and haven't really glimpsed why Christians are Trinitarian. Um, in a liturgical setting, I have heard the argument that a three-fingered blessing represents the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three steps up to the altar. Um, I, the three offices of um, bishop, elder, and deacon, kind of the threefold ministry that you get in some uh, Anglican contexts. Um, and when people um, say those things, like the church is Trinitarian because of this, um, or they'll point to three windows on the wall and say it's Trinitarian, I think, mm. I try not to laugh out loud because that's rude, right? Um, but I try to rephrase it like, you mean it, there's three things there and that reminds you of the Trinity and it's good to be reminded throughout the day of the Trinity because then you can think not about the windows but about the actual Trinity? Um, if that's what you mean, okay. If you're serious about it, it's a dead giveaway that you think the doctrine of the Trinity is an invitation to bring out some cleverness. Um, and I suppose you have your reward because some of these things are really clever. Um, but they're merely clever. Uh, there is even... Uh, there was even an argument in the 90s. This sounds like a joke. A, a Roman Catholic, an Eastern Orthodox, and a Baptist started arguing about the Trinitarian ecclesiology, about how the church is Trinity-shaped. It sounds like a joke, but it really happened. The Roman Catholic argued in print, in a book, that the structure, the inner structure of the Trinity um, has a lot to do with the, uh, the headship and authority of the Father um, over the Son and the Holy Spirit who were fully equal but under him, and that's exactly the way the Pope is with the bishops around the world. And so the structure of the Roman Catholic Church mirrored or um, echoed or represented the structure of the inner life of God. Well, that's a clever argument, right? And that guy went on to become the Pope, so I suppose that's right or something, right? Um, then an Eastern Orthodox teacher got a hold of that and said, no, that's not quite how it goes. Actually, what you have is Father, Son, and Spirit, fully equal, co-eternal, sort of autocephalous and in communion with each other, you know, kind of like the Byzantine Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Russian Orthodox Church. They're, they're not under one sort of Pope or anything, but they're all kind of flowing together in this Trinitarian uh, autocephalous fellowship of equals. Um, you think, okay, well, that's, that's a, thank you for the orthodox answer. And then a Baptist theologian, a very good one, um, I should say an otherwise good one, because I think this is a pretty poor move, um, said, no, it's actually much more like if you wrap your mind around the principle of free association and soul liberty and these three persons agreeing with this absolute um, agreement on what it is to be God, then that's what you're getting in the Trinity. Now, Whichever of those arguments you're more attracted to, um, uh, I think when you see three different churches telling you that their church polity or structure represents what's going on in the Trinity, you could kind of take a step back from that and say, uh, pox on all three of your houses, or everybody out of the pool, or that's not the way we're supposed to do this. Um, and and you, would, you would be right to be suspicious of that, um, no matter what your substantive commitments were. Maybe you found one of those arguments more compelling and more plausible and thought, eh, that's some good points. We need to work with that somehow. Um, just the fact that three different people from three different communions would look to the Trinity and say, yep, that's what our church is shaped like. That should make you highly suspicious. Suspicious of what? Suspicious that what's really going on is projection and that what's really happening is these people hid their own Christmas presents and then pretended to be surprised when they found them, right? And the danger here is they hid them in God, right? <laughs> they took something they already valued, hid it away in the structure of the eternal trinity, 
And then uh, when they unwrapped it on Christmas morning, he said, wow, who knew that the shape of God just happens to be the shape of our church? I mean, it's highly suspect. And even in terms of um, trying to speak coherently to a listening world about what the doctrine of the Trinity means, um, you'd really want to watch yourself on this. You wouldn't want to kind of jump in and say, no, no, the Catholics and the Orthodox and the Baptists are all wrong. I've got the Presbyterian answer. Right? You don't want to be the fourth person to that party because the whole thing already seems very suspect, even if you've got really compelling arguments. Um, in general, um, what's going on there, besides sort of the commitments to their ecclesiologies that they're already bringing to the project of Trinitarian theology, in general what's going on is that approach to the Trinity thinks of the eternal triune God, what some theologians call the imminent Trinity, it's kind of awkward language, but say the eternal Trinity um, considered in itself, oh, I, when I'm speaking, I always do this quickly, and, and people tell me I should take more time with it. Um, take a moment to imagine there's nothing but God. Okay, ready for the next point? Right. I mean, it, it's a giant leap, right, because there is something besides God. God created us, and that's why we're here saying things like this. Um, but if you think away the fact of creation and say, well, it's not, God loves creation, but creation is not necessary to the being of God. There could, hypothetically, be God without a creation. Otherwise, you have to define creation as God plus creation. You have to define God as God plus creation, and then you've got a serious problem, right? So just take a moment and abstractly think away the existence of creation and only think of God in himself. That's what some people call the imminent trinity or the eternal trinity in itself. Um, all three of the theological approaches I just talked about look to the eternal trinity in itself and say, there's something in there that I want to imitate or reflect. And that's what's going to give shape to my engagement with or experience of or understanding of the trinity. To do that is, I think, to pour oil down the dipstick hole and miss the giant button on the top of the engine block. Because the giant button on the top of the engine block here is, in the fullness of time, God, who was always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without reference to the world and his own eternal life, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And the sending of the Son and the Spirit is what created salvation. It brought into being redemption and salvation, it called into existence the people of God in the church. So if you're in a church thinking about the Trinity, you're already soaking in a reality brought about by the big thing God did, the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then to look away from that and say, yeah, but do you have any triangles I could imitate? Right? To, to, to look away from the actual embedded reality that you're in the entire time and say, what I, what I want to do is perform an intellectual exercise of identifying a meaningful structure of threeness in the inner life of God uh, and then replicate it as if it's a blueprint, somehow carry it out down here. Um, the big message here is that you're already soaking in Trinitarian realities. Right? I don't mean, unless you've got a mystical bent, I'm not trying to say something like you're immersed in the life of God. There is a sense in which you are. What I'm saying is that to understand what God is like, to understand what the Trinity is, you start with what God has done, the thing that God has done that manifests God's triunity. Um, I'll, say, I'll say it the short, the sort of Delphic way first. This is a little too dense, and then I'll unpack it. Um, if you really want to know what God is like, God is not like a shamrock. God is not like any particular church structure. God is not like a, a three-person group. Um, 
What God is really like is the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what God is like. If you're looking for a comparison, the one God gave us is this. You know what I'm like? I'm like the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds weird because you want to say, no, God is the Father sending the Son and Holy Spirit, right? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right, but remember, if we're just thinking of God and himself, and God's posing to himself the question, how do I show them who I am, and how do I manifest my triunity towards them? Well, how did God do that? In the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son, right? And when the Father sent the Son, we said, oh, here is one who is sent from the Father, and yet he is fully God. So it must be that the sending God and the sent God, um, that's a salvation history fact. That's, that's news, right? That God sent God to be our salvation. Uh, do you reflect on it and say, why did God send God? Or why did that one send this one? Or why did the Father send the Son? And for instance, not vice versa. You know, that sounds very speculative. That's because it's speculative. Um, the answer is, in the eternal being of God, there is something going on that theologians have historically called procession. Eternal procession, in the case of the Son, it's the eternal generation of the Son or the eternal begetting of the Son. The Son never didn't exist, but always existed as from the Father. There's a Father-Son relation in the eternal being of God that's some kind of fromness that never was not. This, this, is, this is as high as it's going to get. We're going to come back down here in a little bit, right? <laughs> that is, the sending of the Son reveals and manifests and makes known to us the eternal fromness of the Son in the life of God. This is what I mean when I say, what is God like? God is like the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because the Father sending the Son and the Spirit are things that happen in salvation history, right? You can say more than that. You say, they are salvation history, I mean, what is salvation history besides the Father sent the Son and the Spirit? Those are just the central events. The whole Old Testament looks forward to the time when the Father will send the Son and the Spirit. The whole New Testament, as documents, are documentary evidence inspired by God, looking back on that time when the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're all looking back to the arrival of Jesus, the being of Jesus, Jesus among us, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that that thing happening, I sometimes say right in the middle of the Bible, or um, between the Testaments. Does, does that make sense? Maybe I should take a little time with that. Um, the coming of the Son and the Spirit happened between the Testaments in the sense that the prophetic words say the Son and Spirit are coming and the apostolic words say they already came, right? <laughs> the first voice you hear in the New Testament is Paul going, hey Thessalonians, you know that thing I taught you before about when Jesus came? Yeah, anyway, on with church life. And then he says inspired words that are the, the apostolic teaching. Um, but he's always presupposing that you already know the Son and the Spirit came. That's the center of salvation history. In other words, the central meaning of salvation history, the Father sending the Son and the Spirit, that is God's own self-representation of what God is eternally like. It takes a long time to kind of think through this and go, so you're telling me if I could understand the eternal being of God, what I would understand, what's, what's, God's incomprehensible but knowable. And the secret things belong to the Lord, and at no point is anything I'm saying here an attempt to sneak around behind the back of God and spy out something he did not reveal, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. That tells me God has secret things. Would you like to hear them? I can't help you with that. Right? They, they belong to the Lord, and shame on you for wanting to hear them. Um, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children uh, so that we may do all the words of this law, um, 
that means that though we cannot comprehend God, we can truly know him because he is a competent revealer who has truly made himself known. Where? In the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I go round and round this because um, I'm trying to get us to go deeper down into the wisdom that in one sense we all already possess about what the Trinity is, right? You're already immersed in the Trinitarian reality of who God is, um, and what I want to avoid is looking away from that to a speculative construction of something triangular about the number three and a really nifty, keen, clever analogy. Um, not totally ruling out analogies, not totally ruling out any kind of um, intellectual exercise you might do, but it really breaks my heart to see someone um, miss what they've got and kind of hanker after what they think they don't have, especially when what they're going to get is some, some uh, weak kind of a substitute. You know, uh, a few years after I poured a quart of oil down the dipstick hole in my car, um, I convinced somebody to marry me, and we're still married, and uh, we got our first apartment, and we had, it was, it was, oh, it would break your heart if I told you how inexpensive it was. It was amazingly inexpensive, and it was a furnished, uh, no, it was not furnished, but it, utilities were included. We were paying a few hundred dollars in Kentucky in the 80s, 90s, and, um, and, and cable TV was included. So I hooked up my tiny little television to the free cable TV, and I flipped through the channels, and I got like nine channels. I thought, well, that's not very exciting. I mean, even by 1990 standards, that's just not a lot of channels for cable TV. Um, but, you know, we, we watched TV a little bit now and then, and, and we used our nine channels. And, and then something came on on a later channel that I heard about, and I thought, I really want to watch that. So I've got to find a way to get more channels. Am I going to have to pay for some, some cable? Um, and I started fiddling around with some of the settings on the way the heat TV was set up. And what happened is I realized um, because it could only show me single-digit channels, it was only showing me the first nine. And so I unlocked something that enabled it to show me more digits. And all of a sudden, I had like 90 channels. Now, um, here's what I want to get out of that illustration. I want you to picture the pitiful, meager existence I was eking out with merely nine channels when I had 90 available to me, right? The, the cable company was pumping those into my house. Every provision had been made for me to get all 90 channels, and there I was, poor me, just looking at nine and living with less than I actually had. I like the illustration, except that it actually isn't that bad for you to only have nine channels, because once I got 90 channels, I realized there's still nothing on, right? I mean, so, so the point of the illustration should be unfathomable riches feeding into your apartment, but it's just TV, so. Um, but the, in the spiritual life, uh, it really is a tragedy to try to eke out a Christian, theological, churchly existence um, using less than you've actually got uh, available to you. So the key message here is that you're already soaking in a Trinitarian reality. A church is the household of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are already in existence because of the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. To be more Trinitarian, to really um, let our churches be shaped by the Trinity, is not to come up with a clever idea, but to settle into the deep wisdom of what the Trinity has made us as a church. So to get at that, I want to look at three passages of scripture and um, apply them to the shape of our churches. First one is, I've already quoted it, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. In the fullness of time, the Father, uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And then Galatians 4, 6, and he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Now, I hope, uh, hope you heard the Trinity in there, right? Uh, sometimes when I preach, I take a triangle with me, and I ring a little chime every time I say one of the names of one of the persons of the Trinity. Um, God the Father is a little bit anonymous in that verse because it says God sent his Son. 90% of the time in the New Testament, the word God uh, by itself is picking out the first person of the Trinity. In this case, you don't have to take my word for it because what kind of God sends his Son? Right? Got to be God the Father. Same with John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Oh, I'm talking, and Dr. Rippey here wrote a dissertation on the importance of God the Father and where to locate him in the, in the New Testament. Um, so God the Father sent forth his son. Actually, even the, even the language of sent forth, uh, I think, suggests that there's, there's something already in God that he sends forth, right? It doesn't say, for instance... In the fullness of time, God decided it was time to have a son, so then he began to have a son, and then he sent him. That's bad, bad theology, yeah? What happens is, no, God always has a son with him. God the Father and God the Son in the unity of God the Holy Spirit, that's what's always there. In the fullness of time, God sends forth that son. Um, what you get here is the, the fact that the gospel itself is Trinitarian. And by the gospel here, I'm pointing to the objective facts of the structure of salvation history what God did in the sending of the Son and then in the sending of the Holy Spirit, um, he is putting into action a Trinitarian reality. So um, the, uh, my main book on this, well, let me just say, this is my life message, this is really simply, that the Trinity and the Gospel go together. And my main book on this is The Deep Things of God, where I point to the Trinitarian reality of salvation history and say, that's it right there. That's the thing that God is trying to communicate trying to communicate makes it sound like a good effort, God. Um, that's the thing that God is communicating um, and is making known and revealing and bringing us into contact with, the Trinitarian character of the gospel, um, shown in the structure of salvation history in Galatians 4. Then I want to point you to John 20, 28, where Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, semicolon, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, you can hear the three persons of the Trinity there. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, this really connects you to the Trinitarian character of the mission of the church, right? We just looked at how the gospel is that God the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus here in John 20, this is the, what do they call it, the Johannine Pentecost, and you have to deal with like um, how do you reconcile Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, with Luke's historical narrative, descent of the Spirit at Pentecost? Um, I don't want to divert attention to that right now, just to say, this is John's way of getting that theological truth across. How is the Spirit in the church? Jesus himself breathed the Spirit into the church. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he did so specifically for mission, which is the exact same story Luke gives us, right? That it was, you know, wait in Jerusalem till you're clothed with power from on high, the spirit will come, then you go out to the ends of the earth. Same thing here. Trinitarian theology is, throughout the New Testament, missional theology. I'm still a little gun shy of the word missional because it sounds a little too clever to me, but I mean, among friends, if we mean the right thing, you know, yeah, missional, absolutely. That's what's going on here, missional theology. Um, let me just say about since I'm quoting Jesus now um, and, and not just Paul, um, the Lord has a special way of talking about Trinitarian relations. And I mean, it's, it's in the Gospel of John, the, the, um, 
the, the really rich gold mine of, of Trinitarian statements. Here's my situation as a theologian who wants to be a responsible, um, humble theologian serving the word of God and not like lording myself over it or something. Um, whenever Jesus says something like, as the Father sent me, I send you, or elsewhere in John when he says, um, uh, I pray that they may be one as we are one, the first thing I want to do is start backpedaling. I'm like, whoa, 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 Jesus. It, like, not exactly as, right? Um, and I think, so on the one hand, it puts you in the awkward position of looking like you're arguing with Jesus, right? Like, like he's your wild friend who's like, oh, as the Father sent me, I send you. And I'm like, what our Lord means to say is, right? Um, I, you know, when you find yourself in the position of doing like damage control or trying to calm Jesus down, that's a bad situation to be in. Um, nevertheless, I, I do think that we need to make sure we don't take these as Jesus saying, in every way, exactly as the Father sent me, identically to that, so I send you. Because then you'd have to, what would that take? You'd have to make a list of like, so am I eternally of one substance with Jesus the Son? Because that's how the Father sent the Son. They were eternally one, you know, um, and of the same substance. Um, and that is not how I am one with the Son of God. And so Jesus can't mean that in that context. And I want to make the same move with that they may be one as we are one. Right? The, Jesus is really trying to get our attention there and say there is a serious Trinitarian-style unity that is going to characterize the church. Um, but you don't take that to say, as a metaphysical claim, the unity of the church is the same as the metaphysical unity of the three persons of the Trinity. That's just an error. Um, similarly here, the, the way the Father sent the Son, that same momentum, that same direction, that same purpose, that same connection to the same reality and reason, is what uh, sends the church out. So that the, the church is that group of witnesses to Christ sent out by the Son. How do they do it? They do it because the Father sent the Son and the Son breathes the Holy Spirit into the church. So the mission of the church is uh, constituted or constructed Trinitarianly. Um, yeah, that's enough on that. Uh, the, the next passage I wanna point you to is Ephesians 2.18. Ephesians 2.18, um, in Ephesians, again, I don't want to be rude to the apostle, but you always have to interrupt him and catch him in mid-sentence because the sentences are some of the longest in the entire New Testament, right? Um, so I'll, I'll just take 2.18. Um, Through him, we both have access uh, in one spirit to the Father. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, here Paul is talking about worship. In, uh, access is a worship word in the New Testament, right? Think of how it's used in Hebrews. Um, access to the Father is something that if you don't have, you are not entering into the presence of God. Um, access to the Father is not something we can presuppose that we just have by virtue of being human. We can't, we can't just say, well, after all, I'm in the image of God, so I'm sure I got access to the Father. No, this is a privilege term. This is a worship term. This is something that ha you have to get somehow from the rest of Paul's stuff. We know what he means by this. Access to the Father means approaching God as sons of God because Jesus told us to pray. When you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven. So um, sometimes they say it's like logging onto the internet with Jesus's password, right? Like you're trying to get to God. How do you get to God? How do you get access? You have the authority of the eternal son of God to approach God as children of God. So 
Um, that's what it means when it says through him, that is through Christ, we have access to the Father. And the other thing that brings out the worship element of this is in one spirit. Through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, some, translation, some translations will say, uh, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Because the both here, in the context of Ephesians 2, is Jews and Gentiles, right? Where he's saying, Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. And so in him, or through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, this gets to the fact, this gets to the nature of our worship, which is Trinitarian in structure. And then the second thing I want to apply it to is um, racial reconciliation or the overcoming of what could be cultural boundaries between two identifiable people groups. Um, but, but I'll linger for a minute on the, um, on the worship part. Just as I said earlier that we don't want to neglect the fact that we're already soaking in a Trinitarian reality. We don't want to like... Um, ignore our actual spiritual context and look away to an imaginary, um, a, a construct in our mind of something threefold up there that we could somehow imitate here by external distant imitation. Similarly, Christian worship is not merely we're down here as creatures and we worship God up there as, um, as God or as the creator who's up there with our question being, how do we worship that God? Um, if, if you stick at that level and you say, well, now I know some facts about that God. He is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But fundamentally, even though I've said it's not Zeus, it's not some sort of um, merely monopersonal uh, creator God. Um, I'm not worshiping uh, the God of the Quran. I'm not worshiping some other God. I'm worshiping the God of Jesus Christ. That is, I'm worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Good. You get an A on the which God are you worshiping test. But if you still leave the structure of worship just like it would be if you were worshiping a merely monopersonal God from a distance as the God who happens to be Trinity, you're really still working on the outside of the doctrine, right? You're really still thinking, it's business as usual down here, creatures, worship, creatures worshiping creators. Our creator just happens to be triangular. Um, what's really going on is here in Ephesians 2.18. How do we have access to the Father? How does Christian worship happen? Christian worship always happens through him, through the Son, right, in one spirit. Um, so it's true that we certainly are creatures and we are worshiping God who is triune, but we're also worshiping triunely. I don't know if that's a word. If it's a word, I own it. I just made it up. We're, we're also worshiping triunely. It's not just that we worship the Trinity. We worship the Trinity triunely. That is, our access to God is through the Son in the Spirit. Yeah? Um, so one way to say this is... Um, Oh, oh, yeah, so sometimes people want to know, how can I pray more Trinitarianly? And, and usually I have to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Tell me what you mean. Um, often they're wanting to kind of work their way around the triangle and make sure they talk to each of the three persons of the Trinity, which is a fine exercise. I don't consider that like a shallowly clever trick. It's actually, yeah, prompt yourself to remember what you know from Scripture about each of the three persons. Um, but the main thing that I want to say is the foundation of praying in a, in a healthy, theologically informed, spiritually connected, Trinitarian way, the foundation is to know that you're already praying Trinitarianly, whether you know it or not, right? That is to say, even if your personal practice or your church's practice is to pray to Jesus, uh, and a lot of people do this with their kids, right? A lot of people, for various reasons, will train their children to pray to Jesus, dear Jesus. 
I think the main reason for that is they think of Jesus as so concrete and easy to, you know, picture interpersonally um, that they can teach their kids to pray to Jesus, who is God, so you can pray to him, right? Um, uh, even if you're talking to Jesus, you're not coming to the Son of God on your own authority, right? You're coming to the Son of God in the name of the mediator who can make a connection between you and the one who is God. Well, who is that mediator? Well, that's the Son of God. Okay, so even if you don't have a Trinitarian thought in your head, but you're praying as a Christian, you're doing Trinitarian prayer, right? Because it's through the mediation of the Son that you come to the perfectly holy Son of God. Remember, the Son's not less holy or less anything than God the Father. Well, he's less one thing. What, what is the Son less of than the Father? He's less Father, right? But that's it. <laughs> Everything else, the Son is co-equal, co-eternal, completely holy. It's not like he's the low end of God that we can go, oh, I can hang out with him but not the Father. He scares me. Um, so even your access to the Son is mediated by the Son and his work um, and empowered by the Spirit and his work. That's why, since that's the foundation, if you just call that to mind and remember that you kind of know that already, you can say, okay, so more Trinitarian prayer is just being more aware of that because all the prayer is already Trinitarian without you knowing it. Um, I had a friend, um, really brilliant um, uh, guy in Chicago, who had trouble learning to drive as a young man because he, he read too much about the engineering of cars. And he thought about stopping his car when it's going 60 miles an hour and he brings it down to zero and it all happens through the brake pads and the brake shoes. And then he thought about the heat generated by the friction of stopping a car moving at that speed. And he thought, it's astronomical. I can't imagine what possible brake material could withstand that kind of heating and cooling. Um, and he was so up in his head about it that he actually drove worse Right? Because as he was driving, he was thinking too much about the mechanics of it. He's like, I'd better, I'd better just barely hit the brakes at all. Um, we can often trick ourselves in that way. That, that gets us kind of back in the overthinking it zone. Um, we can forget that we know things we actually know and think, um, I only ever talk to Jesus. I want to pray more Trinitarianly. Uh, the main thing I want to say is you're already praying Trinitarianly. Whether you know it or not, it's already working. Sometimes I say, if you manage to get yourself saved, which is a real Pelagian way to put it, right? If you manage to get yourself saved, you're already in touch with the Trinitarian reality. If you're managing to pray to God at all in any way as a Christian, you are already praying Trinitarianly. Once you know that people really believe that, like once, if you're not just nodding your head and going, yep, that's right, but you actually believe it, then we can say, okay, now there's some tinkering we can do. We can actually do some exercises, like here are some prayers you can look at and study and ponder and think about. You can pray the prayers of the New Testament, and you'll find that they tend to be more Trinitarian um, than some of our default prayers that are just generated by our culture. Anyway, the point is that um, Christian worship, Christian prayer is already Trinitarian. There's something triune going on in it. The racial reconciliation bit, the fact that Paul brings this out and makes it explicit in the fact that Jews and Gentiles were far apart, but that Jesus the Messiah came and preached peace to those who were far and those who were near, so that now we have access um, in one spirit to the Father, just means that this is a necessary entailment of a Trinitarian understanding of the gospel. Um, so Flannery O'Connor has a short story called Everything That Rises Must Converge. It's everyone who's going to worship with the Trinity has got to get together to worship with the Trinity. There's no kind of separate but equal worship in principle, right? Um, there's a convergence that's gonna happen as we both, or we all, have access to the Father. 
because there's one way, right? It's through the Son, in the same Spirit, to the same Father. And so there's a unity that uh, knocks down ethnic and racial and social barriers um, as we approach it. Okay, well, this is my approach to how the Trinity should form our churches. And um, I always feel like when I speak on a subject like this, I should have like five nifty things to do or concrete recommendations. I have made the prudential judgment. I am so concerned that uh, we actually need to grasp the fact that we are immersed in a Trinitarian reality and that until we do that, um, it's no good sort of fiddling with the other stuff. Um, and I also